still in the book of Ezekiel, and we are starting on chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter their bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Who is he speaking to? I will suggest he is speaking to the land. Son of man, set your face toward the hills of Israel and prophesy against them. So what do you suppose that means? Remember he says in other places, if you follow after other gods, the land will vomit you out. So there seems to be something about the land of Israel that it is an active participant, if you will, in the interaction between God and his people. Just the plain sense of this paragraph is that you have been defiled with idols and high places and worship places to other gods and that needs to be cleaned out and oh in the process the people who are doing that worship are going to die but the focus if you will is on the land itself so for example one of the things that happens in Genesis when Cain kills Abel what does God say the land cries out with the blood of your brother. In other places in scripture, specifically Deuteronomy, God calls heaven and earth as witnesses to the covenant. And Yeshua said at the triumphal entry, if these people were silent, the very stones themselves would cry out. So this is very, very consistent with all the rest of scripture. And I will suggest to you that there is something literal going on there. You could take it metaphorically, and that isn't necessarily wrong, but I'm suggesting that the plain sense of Scripture is that there's an interaction, if you will, between God, the land, and the people. Verse 8. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered throughout the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captives. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. So he, who's speaking here? It's the Lord's speaking. I mean, obviously through the mouth of the prophet. Again, the sense of it is this is first person singular, the Lord himself speaking. I find it very interesting here that he says in verse 9, I have been broken over their whoring heart that is departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. What God is saying here is, you have broken my heart. As we assume that God's capacity to love exceeds our own, which I believe it does, similarly, his capacity to be hurt exceeds our own. And I believe that's true also. The other thing to see here is the metaphor that he's using is adultery. 
So he speaks of Israel as an adulteress. Again, the idea here that from God's perspective, idolatry is not simply an error. It is a breach of marital faith. And it's interesting, if you look at every pagan religion that I know of, they all have sex as an integral part of what they do. Remember in Numbers, when the Moabites came in and seduced the sons of Israel. What they did is they sent in temple prostitutes to come in and seduce the Israeli men away with physical sex. I can remember as a child, I devoured books. And one of the things that I really used to enjoy reading about were things like mythology, because that's where all the dirty pictures were that I could look at. Yeah, I mean, I mean as a young boy, this was before the age of Playboy, you know, I'm that old, but that's one of the places that I could go into a library and see racy stuff and not have anybody get mad at me. And that's what Satan uses as the counterfeit for a relationship with God. He basically perverts the sex drive, which everybody has, and uses that to lure us away from God. I've been talking in a context of male. It works both ways. The pagan temples in the Mediterranean had prostitutes, both male and female. Satan is an equal opportunity to her. But what I'm saying is this business of idolatry is all wrapped up in sex, and God sees the relationship between him and Israel as a marital relationship. The next one, and I'm still in verse 9. And they will be loathsome in their own eyes for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. Interesting. What he's saying there is when they go into exile, they will realize what they have done and they will become loathsome in their own eyes. A little Johnnyology here. One of the signature characteristics of much of the Sunday church is this sense of worthlessness. Oh, I'm a worthless sinner. The only thing that makes me worth anything is that God loves me, and I can't figure out why he does that. You know, you look at people like Martin Luther. Martin Luther spent his whole life believing that he was a worthless worm, and you know, he had all sorts of physical problems because of his lack of esteem. He was a mess in lots of ways. And there are lots of churchmen that are the same way. And they have this impression of themselves as being worthless and nothing except by the grace of God. That's not God's view of you. God's view of you is that you are worth a great deal. And so if you're running around thinking and believing that you are in any way worthless, you have been deceived. And I will suggest to you that, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. I will suggest to you that's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 11, thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword. 
and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. That's pretty inclusive. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When the slain lie among their idols, among their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to their idols, and I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste, in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah, then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, one of the things that he is doing by this is he is demonstrating that the idols and the gods that they serve cannot save them. Remember, that's what God did with Pharaoh in Egypt. He demonstrated very clearly that their gods had no power to save. And that whatever God wanted to do, God would do, and there wasn't a thing Pharaoh could do about it. These idols that you have worshipped cannot save. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you graphically. That's what he's saying. And again, if you go back to the progression, and it starts in Moab, people are attracted to sex. And so you have all of these pagan religions in the land, and you've got all these curious Israelite boys and girls. I'll go, I'll go to the temple on Shabbat, but, but, but today's Wednesday. And what happens over a period of time is you gradually drift away from God and to the idols until you get to the point where God says, enough. And what makes God say enough? What causes God to be right up to here? Violence and injustice. That's the thing that finally tips God. And his heart is broken when you go whoring after idols. And from our perspective, the problem with whoring after idols leads to a downhill spiral that winds up in injustice and violence. And if you don't believe that, look at any pagan country in the world today. Most of them are plutocracies, which is they are run by the strong. Look at Zimbabwe. Look at Somalia. Look at these places. They're run by violence. They're run by whoever's strongest. And that is a function of drifting away from God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only one that I know of that has an ethic that says that you'll protect the weak, you'll protect the orphan, you'll protect the widow and the stranger. That's Torah. And God's the only one that does that that I know of. Everybody else has some variation of if you're strong enough, take it. And some of them dress it up in really good-looking philosophy. They're very smart people. These are not stupid people. So they dress it up, but that's the way it finally shakes out. Chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. I will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Who is he speaking to here? Looks like the land again, doesn't it? And in fact, what is the state of the land when Israel is in exile? It's desert. It's desolate. 
During the 2,000 years before Israel was reconstituted as a nation, travelers would walk through that place and say, why would anybody want to live here? And what God is saying to the land is, I will punish you for all of your abominations. And he did. And as somebody once said in one of these midrashes, if you look at a satellite photo of Israel, you can see what part of it is occupied by Jews and what part of it is occupied by Arabs. The stuff that's owned by the Jews is green and lush and fertile and productive. What the Palestinians say about that is, yeah, because the Jews took all the good stuff for themselves. No, that's not what it is. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. Okay, now he's shifted. In the previous paragraph, he was talking to the land. Now he is talking to the inhabitants. And this isn't good either. Your doom has come upon you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. A day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your abominations, and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Verse 10. Behold the day, behold it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. So what's he talking about here? The rod has blossomed. Remember in Numbers during Korah's rebellion, one of the things that was done by God to quell the rebellion was he had each of the tribes bring forth a rod and write his name on it. And the next day, the rod that belonged to Aaron had blossomed and pride has budded. So what is he talking about here? The priesthood, yes. He is talking about the priesthood. It has become corrupt. And instead of blossoming with almonds and so forth as a sign of God's favor, now that blossoming rod has budded with pride. And violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. So what I'm suggesting to you here is he is talking about the fact that the priesthood has become corrupt. And idolatry leads to violence. None of them shall remain nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be a preeminence among them. Who is supposed to be preeminent? The priests. The time has come, the day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude, it shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. What's being said there? The seller shall not return to what he has sold. Jubilee. The law at Jubilee is that the land of Israel was only rented. It never permanently changed hands. And at the Jubilee, all of the land went back to the tribe that owned it. And what he's saying is, forget that, guys. You ain't coming back in time for the next Jubilee. 14. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. 
And if any of survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on their faces and baldness on all their heads. Okay, what's going on there? City being under siege, what else? The will to fight is gone. They are going to be besieged, but their army is not going to have the nerve to stand up and fight. So all they're going to be able to do is retreat into their cities and starve. And who causes that? God. So what God is saying is when I do this, you are not going to be able to fight whoever I send. You will have no will to fight. 18. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornaments they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it to the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. First off, where is his treasure's place? His treasured place is the temple. And what he says is, which happened twice and it's now under Muslim domination, is he will remove himself from the temple mount and all of the wealth that got poured into the construction of that temple will be looted. Nebuchadnezzar did it, Titus did it, and the Muslims today are doing it. Now I want to cross-reference you here to Isaiah 3, and I'll pick it up in verse 16. Moreover, the Lord says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes, and so it shall be. Instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And branding, instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Does that sound very much like we just read in Ezekiel? The point here is that Israel is going to be taken into captivity. And as part of that, the temple itself will be profaned. Verse 23. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Here we go. Okay, remember I said that it starts off with idolatry. The thing that God laments initially is the unfaithfulness of Israel. But now we're getting to the thing that has finally brought him to action. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. 
When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and the counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. This mirrors Isaiah 29. Pick it up in verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. So what he is saying is when you go into exile, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away your prophets and your seers and I'm going to close the book. And that's what he is saying in Ezekiel also. If you go back to Ezekiel 7.26, disaster comes upon disaster, rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and the counsel from the elders, prophets and seers, wise men and prophets. They both are going to fail Israel before exile. That's what Isaiah says. I will close your eyes and your ears, namely your prophets and your seers. So what happens when you go into exile is you lose the ability to prophesy, which is to hear directly from God, and you also lose your interpretation of Scripture. And again, we've talked about that before. That's why in exile here you can have 10 different denominations, read the same passage of Scripture, and come up with 11 different interpretations because the book is closed. And it is my prayer which is what I pray before we start all these things, that God will begin to open the book so we will understand it properly. But I will tell you that Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Holy Rollers, Mormons, you name it, they are all reading the same book you are. And they have different understandings of what the Word is saying. And they all think that they are right. Just like I think I'm right. So approach this with some humility. Later on in Isaiah 29, God reverses that process and he opens the book again and he restores prophets and he restores seers. And it is my prayer that that's happening now, but come at it with some humility. When you're dealing with your Sunday brethren, there are things that you think you can see very clearly and they think they can see them just as clearly and one or both of us is wrong. That's why I say don't be a Torah terrorist. Chapter 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. This is about 14 months later than the previous one we just read. Ezekiel dated the first one, and that is in chapter 1, verse 2. And that was in the fifth year of the exile of Jehoiakim. And now we're in the sixth year in the sixth month, so we're about 14 months later. On the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, 
and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like glimmering metal. And we talked about this last time, and it was my surmise that what is happening here is Ezekiel is looking up through the sea of glass. John, I believe, looks horizontally, and then Isaiah looks downward on it. So you have three different prophets that see the same thing from three different perspectives, and they all describe the same thing. But in Ezekiel's case, he's, he's down underneath it, and he's looking up through this sea of glass, so you can imagine that he's seeing, and we looked at the description of Yeshua, remember? He had a golden band around his chest, and his feet were like burnished brass, you could infer then, if you're looking up through something that is slightly distorting, you know, like you're in the bottom of a swimming pool and you're looking up at somebody standing on the edge of the pool. So what I'm suggesting that he is seeing here is Yeshua. Doesn't mean that's right, that's just what I'm suggesting. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And I, and I sort of inferred, he sort of reached down into the pool and grabbed him up by the hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. So he is on the north side of the temple. And he's been brought there by the Spirit. There was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So what does that say? Somebody put an idol there. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north. And behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. So what he's saying here is that the children of Israel have put up an idol in the holy place, not inside the building itself. It's in the courtyard between the building and the gate as I read this. And what is the purpose of this image? To drive God away. What is the purpose of all of the stuff that is going on on the Temple Mount to this day? To drive God away. What's happening with that piece of real estate is Satan does not want the presence of God there. And Satan is not capable of driving God away. We are. Everybody hear what I said? We are capable of driving God away because God desires to have intimate relationships with us. And if we're not going to do that, he's not going to stay in the house. Anybody heard that phrase, if God doesn't seem to be with you, guess who moved? <laughs> Most people will say, you're the one that moved. God doesn't move. That's not biblical. If you fall into idolatry and so forth, God will move away from you. Just like he moved away from Israel, just like he moved away from the Temple Mount. That, by the way, doesn't mean that God is inconsistent. I mean, that part of the little phrase is right. God is consistent. He is consistently who he is. And you're the problem. I mean, I, I agree with that. But the question on who moved, most of the church has got it exactly backwards. Verse 7. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. 
And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in, and see the vile abominations that are committed there. I have no idea what the business is with the hole. I mean, there's been lots of physical symbolism in the book of Ezekiel, you know, laying on one side, laying on the other one, baking, you know. I am sure there is symbolism here. I don't know what it is. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in, and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. Where have you seen this before? Egypt. Have you ever seen pictures of an archaeological dig in Egypt? You've got these images of gods and beasts and, and all, and I mean, they worship bugs for God's sake. And you've got images of this stuff all around. And that's what's happening in Israel inside the very temple of God. They have turned it into an Egyptian temple. Verse 11. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jaaz Aniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. So what we have here is the Sanhedrin. So this is the very governing body of Israel who are meeting. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. So what's happening? Israel is in these chambers that they've turned into replicas of, a, of an Egyptian temple. And what they're saying is, God is no longer with us. That's right, you've driven him off. But they are saying God is no longer with us as if it is God that has forsaken them instead of the other way around. They are saying that God is no longer in the land. True statement. Why isn't he there? Because you guys have fallen into idolatry and you've driven him off. And now you're blaming him for having left when you're the ones that drove him off. 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Most of the body of Christ worships on what day? Sun day. And as Constantine said, the great and glorious day of the sun. He didn't even hide it. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah? Notice we've changed now the house of Judah. They're the ones that are still in the land. To commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. Notice we have idolatry, then violence. Very consistent. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. I have no idea what that means. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So one of the things that happens with God is you can get to the point where he ceases to listen to your prayers. Everybody understand what I just said? You can get to the point, both as a nation and individually, where God ceases to answer your prayers. Now, does that mean that he ceases to love you? No. Does that mean that he ceases to watch over you? 
No. Does that mean that you're in for some rough times? Yes. But understand that God will move away and God will cease to answer prayer. Mm 